Hello, welcome to PSR, People Speaking Rail, and we are those people. I'm Mike Bowden, just full head of Intermodal Solutions here at FreightWaves, joined as always by Joanna Marsh, who does the editorial writing at FreightWaves. Uh, Joanna, how are you today? I'm pretty good. How are you? Very hot here in Dallas. Uh, so we're going to be talking um, mostly about Canada. Uh, the Canadian railroads have to clean up the mess that the ILUW Canada made. So um, we're going to be talking about that. Um, wouldn't mind being up in Vancouver uh, right now. I think it would be um, you know, a lot nicer than uh, down here in Dallas. Uh, so we'll, we'll come at this from a couple of different perspectives. First, uh, I'll give some highlights of um, Lorianne LaRocco's article that's up on FreightWaves.com that you can go check out. I'll also, uh, there, there's her, her article uh, just published as of uh, you know, Friday, uh, so still up to date uh, there. And then I'll go through some of the data that we have in FreightWaves Sonar related to the, the to the strike um, on the ocean side and also the, the rail removal side. And then we're going to be speaking to John Schmitter at Rail State, who's been on uh, FreightWaves TV now a few times. And he has a number of interesting charts on both um, rail intermodal in Canada and also the rail carload business in Canada. I think can draw some distinctions between what's happening, what happened, what, what is happening and has happened in Prince Rupert versus um, a British uh, Columbia, so it's further south in British Columbia in, uh, in Vancouver. And um, so we'll do all that today. So I mean, kind of a, a Canada heavy um, show. And uh, for those who didn't see it, I'd encourage you to go back and check out last week's episode, which I thought was a good one. We did a, a discussion with Chuck Baker, Chuck's uh, short line and regional railroad associations. Uh, Joanna, what was your maybe one or two takeaways uh, from that discussion? Yeah, you know, I, it, it's one of those obvious things, but it was nice to to be reminded um, how uh, how how close the the, the short lines are, uh, or the, how close they can be to 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 the shippers. So, in a sense, you know the 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 issues that the shippers were feeling. Um, in last year in particular, um, with, uh, the service, um, uh, issues that were happening, uh, you know, that, that, that those same sort of, uh, pressure points, um, or pain points were also being experienced by the short line. So I, I think that, um, e even though that's kind of a fairly obvious thing, but, you know, it's, it's just nice and not nice, but it, it was good to be reminded, um, of, of that connection that the, that the short lines have. Uh, to the shippers that you know, to the extent that you know i feel your pain kind of thing yeah so what what sort of takeaways did you get from it yeah i, I agree with you we don't talk about the short lines enough or how important they are it's probably just because there's um you know lots of little companies uh although florida east coast railway might not say that there's that there's so little uh, i think for me is really on the service side where um you know chuck was talking about how service has improved and uh, I was pretty optimistic on the current, um, you know, prop of class one railroad CEOs that they're less um, driven by lowering the operating ratio, not playing the operating ratio limbo. How low can you go? What they're trying to do instead is maybe balance that um, the short term concerns with concerns about growing the volume of delivering excellent customer service uh, and, and all of those things, which ultimately is in the best long-term interest of the railroads and, and, the, and the shareholders that maybe hold the the shares for for longer than a quarter. Um, so um, it was sort of taken by his, his optimism on service, and then and then he called out CSX as being ahead of the game and at least ahead of the ahead of the other railroads in terms of recent uh, service improvements. So that's something that um, that, that that stood out uh, to me. Um, 
So I encourage everyone to go back and, and, and check out that, um, you know, that uh, episode, um, which is available on the Great Waves uh, YouTube uh, channel, like all the other um, Great Waves uh, television shows are. And with that, uh, I'll just give a few highlights of Lorianne LaRocco's article. For those who haven't read it, um, you know, can put that back up on the on, on the screen. I have some nice looking um, uh, gantry cranes there, uh, presumably in the port of uh, Vancouver. We see the, the mountains in the background. So, uh, Lorianne, um, for those who don't know who she is, she's on CNBC, follows the ocean uh, shipping industry very closely. And some of the highlights here is, you know, she has talked about some of the di- diversions from going from the Canadian ports to the U.S. West Coast ports. And uh, says they you know sort of with those comes you know not only at the time but also some extra costs that you know is encouraged by there's not a lot of congestion at the U.S. ports right now. Um, says about 15 percent of U.S. trade arrives into the port of Vancouver, but um, sort of as a reminder of that the port of Prince Rupert, more of that traffic is for U.S. consumption. About 60 percent of the of the traffic that goes to the port of Prince Rupert for U.S. consumption, and then she goes on to talk about. Um, just how long the network might be impacted by the strike, which I think is is on top of, of most people's uh, minds. She cites her, the Railway Association of Canada, which estimates that for every one day of the strike equals three to five days of cleanup. And it was a 13-day strike from July 1st to July 13th. And so that equates, do the math, 39 to 65 days, let's call it six to nine Week. So I hope it's not that uh, long. Um, some of the other uh, companies she cited, ITS Logistics, said there's about a two-week backlog currently for containers um, at, at the West Coast ports, which will take at least four weeks to, to clear. So ITS was maybe a little bit more optimistic than the Railway Association of uh, Canada. And then uh, she has a quote from Eric uh, Beyer, CEO of National Association of Chemical Distributors. And Eric says that uh, rebooking through the U.S. West Coast um, for those that were, you know, diverted traffic through the U.S. West Coast would take an extra 10 to 14 uh, days um, because extra tra- ground transit time. Uh, that's a result of the, the redirect. I'm not sure exactly how it, it equates to that, but but I thought that was an interesting uh, perspective as. Um, so it's not going to be um, solved overnight. It's kind of like you know, sort of any other railroad disruption, whether it's a hurricane on the Gulf Coast or a polar vortex in Chicago or a flood in Nebraska. It's just these these things take time to to get resolved, um, you know, we also have a few charts in uh, the FreightWave Sonar product I want to go through. So the first ones I want to go through are um, in the Ocean, um, you know, Container Atlas product, which is an app within Sonar. And so this orange uh, line is a line of the Ocean TU rejection index. So just like how truckload carriers can reject um, tender uh, tenders, which are a request to move a load, Ocean carriers do the same thing. And uh, what you see here is this big spike in the orange line. And it went from the ocean carriers in specifically in this this sort of key lane, which is Shanghai, China to uh, Vancouver. That rejection rate went from 7% before the strike. Now it's about 16%. So those rejection rates haven't come down. This is a daily data series. So those are still elevated if you're trying to get your container on a vessel um, from Shanghai to Vancouver, you know, that's available on any any lane you want to see it in sonar. Also have a uh, data point on uh, ocean TU transit times. This is going to be a purple uh, line if we can get that up. So this looks like kind of a flat line at, at a 30,000 point view. But if you look at it, sort of just the time from when the, the, the strike started, it was about, let's say, a 16 day, 16, 17 day transit time. And that became elevated to about a 21 day 
transit time. So that's a method called slow steaming, which saves fuel. But it's also like if you're just going to meet congestion at Vancouver, there's no real hurry up uh, reason to get to Vancouver. You might as well go a little bit slower, uh, save your your fuel. And then we have one from Project 44, uh, uh, red line here, which shows a big spike on ocean uh, port pair delay. So we have a few different data series we get from Project 44, the folks in Chicago, Jet McCandless's uh, company, and uh, sees a big spike there in um, ocean uh, delays. Uh, so this is going to be a port pair delay also from Shanghai to Vancouver. So the average delay was only about two days. So it was pretty close to, to getting on time. Um, but that you know, two days uh, has become about nine uh, days. So those do seem to be about, um, let's call it a, a week plus, you know, worse than they typically would, would, would be. So we have all those things. Can, can look at that, um, as I said, any lane you want to see. And then also interesting chart here, which relates to what we're going to be talking about with, with John Schmitter on um, the, the rail traffic. So one of the data series we have in FreightWave Sonar from a company that processes the railroad way bills. And we break this down uh, between international uh, intermodal volume that's loaded, which is the white line outbound from Vancouver to U-shaped. Um, this is a seven-day moving average. So we'd expect this to come up um, in, the, in the coming days. And then you have the domestic side of things. These are 53-foot containers. Now, keep in mind, Canada, much more weighted to the, the international uh, intermodal versus domestic uh, when you compare that to the United States. Uh, and the domestic, it really didn't have as big of an impact, although it, it, it did have it did have some. So um, and clearly here, domestic intermodal, as you'd expect, not as dependent upon the ILWU um, Longstrom and showing up uh, for work. Um, Joanna, is anything I missed from your perspective on this poor uh, situation before we get into John? No, I don't think so. I mean, uh, you know, you, you you covered it pretty well. And, you know, as you had mentioned, um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how how long it'll take for, for things to, to smooth out um, in terms of, you know, like getting getting everything kind of back to, you know, to, to, to typical service metrics. And so, um, and of course, now you kind of have the, the, the peak season too. So you, you know, so that's another dynamic comes into play. So, um, you know, I thought it was interesting how uh, some of the other movements, uh, the non-intermodal goods, you know, like such as coal and, and grain, I think, you know, kept moving um, throughout. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it'll just be interesting to see like how, um, how things quickly think, get back to normal. Yeah, I'd say that's the one thing I missed in that discussion was, um, you know, this is really sort of a, a intermodal issue um rain and uh, coal actually some of those are were actually up which you talked about in one of your articles um so with that um would like to get into today's guest which is john schmitter um he's with rail state so this is a company that's been on uh, john's been on freight waves tv a, a few times uh now and you have a lot of interesting you know data that you see in um in, in real time really valuable to shippers uh john thank you for joining us all right thanks for having me mike how are you how are you joanna you're doing well yeah great to have you um for those who are not uh familiar with real estate why don't you give us a, just a quick overview of of, of your company uh we think of real estate as providing the real uh, network visibility right you can track your own rail car or your container in north america but there's no network visibility like uh, similar to what you would have with ocean shipping airlines and and highways um uh, only basically the system average train speeds that's uh that they report that's uh, a week old and required by by regulators. So think of us as a Google Maps or ways for freight railroads in North America. 
get a look at every train and every car moving every over every rail segment. Yeah, railroad service uh, metrics has really been a problem for some time. Like it doesn't really matter what the average velocity was in the whole network a week ago. Um, you really care about the the, the the segments that you're running over. Um, so this is, is is valuable for 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 shippers. Um, John, on your website, you have a number of articles he posted as part of your blog that um, you know talk about the impact that you're seeing in your data on you know, from the ILWU Canada strike. Um, you want to go through um, some of the highlights? Uh, sure. As you uh, as you mentioned, the uh, the the intermodal traffic uh, pretty much dried up immediately from both the uh, the the port of Vancouver and the and and at Prince Rupert. Um, but as you, uh, yeah, as you also pointed out, the, uh, the coal movements into, into Prince Rupert actually, uh, actually increased, um, uh, quite a bit. And that's, you know, that was a result of, of the, uh, you know, both the CN and the, uh, at the Trigon terminals up there in Prince Rupert providing the capacity. So some volumes were shifted from, uh, from Vancouver up to, uh, up to, up to Prince Rupert, um, the uh, the uh, uh, grain grain also uh, increased uh, over that uh, over that time period as well. The uh, I believe Canadian regulations required the the port terminals and 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 port labor to to handle continue to handle grain shipments. So um, yeah, it's hard to say that, that that the increase had to do with the strike, but the uh, you know there was capacity there. It seems like the you know the grain folks took uh, took took advantage of it. Um, in Vancouver, coal still moved to uh, to West Shore terminals in uh, in Vancouver, but the uh, uh, the other coal terminal there, Neptune uh, Neptune bulk terminals, was uh, was on strike. So some of that volume shifted to uh, up to Prince Rupert. Some did, uh, uh, yeah, really. Just, you know, some of those sales were just uh, were, you know, essentially essentially lost um, uh, because of lack of capacity to uh, to move it. Yeah, I mean that's one of the interesting things about your data too is um, you know you talk about these individual terminals and like that's one thing that we don't see. I mean we we, we use a, a different supplier. You're sort of collecting the data kind of firsthand, and like our supplier won't give it to us on the rail ramp level or like terminal level. Whereas you can see all that all, all that detail because or shipper you probably know exactly which terminal you use. Um, you know to 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 that level of detail is 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 really important. Um, and it is counterintuitive, at least to me, it's counterintuitive that um, some of these bulk commodities could actually be up because they use different rail cars. It's almost like, you know, I, I guess maybe there's fewer, there's less congestion on, you know, the main lines and those things and, and, and they can move more in. But but to me, I was surprised to to, to see that even with that being protected um, by the Canadian government. Well, you, you could see, you could see that, you know, definitely that, you know, since the intermodal trains weren't running, Right, the, uh, the 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 railways now you know had some capacity available in crews and uh, and locomotives to handle to handle other other commodities, particularly uh, particularly crews, and so they you know they you know it looks like they were you know, able then to uh, you know to CN was able to handle that extra volume up to uh, up to Prince Rupert in uh, in coal trains. Um, well, the great trains were up, uh, you know, a lot of uh, you know by a by a pretty high percentage it's, it's not that many grain trains go there um so it's uh in, in terms of total volume it, yeah, w- it wasn't a lot but 
Um, but the, uh, but yeah, it's, it looks like, uh, all parties involved did the best they could with the capacity was made available when the intermodal dried up. Yeah. It does sort of, um, lend maybe credence to the contention that, um, it was really sort of been the crewing that have, has been the, the issue for a lot of the rail, um, service issues the last couple of years, because, um, the crew, that was one resource that's made more available because of that, that, that strike that was able to, to move some of that volume. Um, I want to ask you also, John, um, some of this, um, you know, what else are you seeing in terms of rail service that um, is maybe not evident from the, the publicly available, you know, data that sort of stand, like what stands out to you in terms of what's happening in with, with rail service? Well, I, um, a, a, a couple things, the, uh, you know, one is one commodity we didn't, we didn't talk about was, uh, was potash. And, uh, the, the, you know, the, the potash terminals in, in, in Vancouver at, at, at Neptune and the, uh, the other one at Pacific coast terminals at Port Moody were, those were on strike. So, uh, that, you know, that, that pretty much dried up the, uh, the, the, the potash movements and, you know, you saw both, uh, Nutrien and Mosaic, uh, well, I, at least Nutrien, I'm not sure about Mosaic had, had cut back production, um, because their, uh, you know, their export outlet to Campitex had, uh, you know, their, their main port at, the at Neptune was, uh, was on strike. Now they continued to move shipments to Portland. Um, but they cut back production and it's, you know, it's not like you, you, you we, we, we talk about the, uh, the, the railroads and we talk about it, it'll be, you know, one day for every, for every, uh, 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 day of the, of the, of the strike and, you know, trying to, you know, have, you know, six or eight weeks, whatever it is to, uh, to dig out of it. Um, I, you know, I think that's, uh, uh, it, it's re- really, really got to be careful there because that intermodal traffic is going to start moving and the railways, at, at, le- at least in the first few days, uh, certainly look like they're, uh, uh, you know, they're, that they're moving to handle that container backlog at both Prince Rupert and, and Vancouver. Um, the volume started to move immediately and, um, you know, for the, uh, for the last day or two, it's been, uh, it has been much higher than the average before the strike, um, at both, uh, in, both in, uh, Vancouver and in, and in Prince Rupert. But, um, you know, those, uh, you know, as the traffic starts flowing, you know, the, the crew supply is an unlimited. So, um, we'll see what the steady state is, but in, in, for, for the most part, the, you know, the railroads are not going to have the capacity to move all of the, uh, for example, of those backlogged, uh, potash shipments were, uh, uh, were, um, were coal shipments. And even if they did, um, I'm not sure that terminals would, you know, would have the capacity to, uh, to, to process it anyway. So, um, you know, those shipment, those, uh, that's volume that'll be lost to the economy of Canada. Yeah. You bring up, you bring us some good points there. I just have a good chart on there. I wanted to show that you sent to us. It was, it's uh, titled is intermodal leaving Prince Rupert by train. Uh, eastbound. And if our production team could, could get that up there, I think it really illustrates what you were just talking about, um, which it went from, you know, about, let's say five, anywhere from 500 to, yeah. So you see it's, it before and it was about, let's call it an average of 600 um, containers uh, leaving Prince Rupert on the average. And then it goes to zero uh, when the strike hits. And then it very quickly goes up to 900 to 700 a day. And so, you know, it, you're right. I mean, all this traffic, I mean, when you talk about, um, take a certain number of days to recover for how much to strike, it's kind of a rule of thumb. 
which um, rules of thumb are almost always, you know, not um, help, you know, granular enough to be important. But but this seems like, you know, the, the intermodal stuff um, is just more time sensitive than, let's say, potash or, or grain or something. So you would expect that this is going to be elevated for, for some time, I'd imagine. Well, I think it'll be uh, ele- elevated until the uh, until the, the container backlog is processed with the you know the ships that have been been waiting at the port. Um, you know, I you know I I don't know that the railroads have the capacity to move uh, to move volume out of Prince Rupert or intermodal volume out of Prince Rupert or Vancouver at this level for any sustained period period of time. Um, but you know, without without affecting the capacity that's available to other commodities. So, you know, I would point out if you're a, if you're a shipper of anything, but intermodal, yeah, I'd be careful and monitor this situation very, very, very closely. Um, that goes that, that the capacity that's, that's moving this intermodal, uh, traffic is coming from someplace. Yeah. That's a good point so, too. You'd almost be more, almost straight off on priorities. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So you'd, you'd almost be more worried now if, if I was a grain shipper or a potash shipper, I'm like, oh, are the, all the crews going to go to intermodals? Cause that's, you know, it needs to be on the shelves for back to school and back to schools here in a couple, a couple of weeks. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's really the, the biggest use case our shippers have for, for our customers have for real estate data, you know, without, without real estate, there's no network view. You don't know what's going on there. And, uh, you know, you, you, you know, your, your, your own shipments may be, may be having problems, but, uh, you know, you don't, you don't know that the, uh, that, that the, the same capacity is being, is, is being made available. Capacity didn't try up. It's just that it's, uh, you know, that, that's, it's other commodities are being prioritized. Um, and that, you know, that's, that, that's, uh, you know, it enables our customers to have a more informed discussion with the railway about what's going on. And what they can, what they can, what they can really expect, uh, but you know, the, the railways do the best they can with the, uh, w- you know, with the with the with the priorities they have to, uh, uh, to 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 fulfill. But you know, if you're a shipper it, it, uh, of any other commodity, it requires you know a, a decent amount of planning and understanding about what's happening out there, and that's that's that, that that's what uh, that that's what our our customers do with the data that they uh, they get from real estate. Joanne, did you have any questions for John? Sorry, I had to go on mute here for a second. Uh, let's see. I think um, kind of kind of jumping over to um, to to the U.S. Actually, um, uh, and, you know, I, yeah, you mentioned that you know you have a lot of data in Canada. I guess how how is the um, uh, how how are you um, progressing so far with you know um, collecting data from U.S. and you know if. In, in sort of the, the the two in a two minute time slot, you know, have, um, if you have these sort of thoughts on, on uh, you know, U.S. movements to fall <laughs> like in one minute or two minutes. Oh sure, sure. We 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 started in Canada for a variety of reasons, but we're we're uh, we're starting to deploy centers in the United States now. Uh, it's covering the U.S. network. We've we've uh, located easements for uh, uh, about about. Yeah, sixteen sites now in uh, between Southern California and uh, and Arizona, and we'll we'll be expanding very rapidly in the in in the U.S. Um, so we'll be we'll be very 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 soon be able to produce the same kind of data for uh, uh, for 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 U.S. movements, and it's uh, you know right now our our view. I mean, what we've seen at least in uh, at least in Canada, that uh, railway services has, has been. Uh, uh, it's been pretty good for, uh, for, for, uh, for, for most of the year. And, um, 
you know, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, some of it you can attribute to, uh, to total volume, uh, be, being down a bit, but, uh, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, we can expect to, to, to see some of the same, same things in the U S but we're, we're looking forward to come coming on soon and talk to you about the, uh, about the same kind of data in the U S. Absolutely. Happy to have you on uh, again. Um, maybe we can work together even on, you know, sonar. We can maybe have a rail state, uh, you know, sonar, you know, ticker. That would be great um, as, as well. Something to maybe consider. Uh, John, thanks so much for being on. Um, how can folks reach out to you and rail state? Um, just uh, you can get us on our website at railstate.com. Rail state is one word or just feel free to, uh, talk, to email me at John Schnitter at railstate.com. Great. Well, thanks, John. Hope everyone has a great day. 